I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, if it is there, Atanis, then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let her go. If you still want the Ark, it has been loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Our Steven Spielberg season continues with this 1981 return to form. If you've been listening to our bonus Patreon feed, you will know by now that we weren't hugely keen on the Sugarland Express, which he filmed before Jaws, uh, though we did like his tense truck chase TV movie Duel. We did not care for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, though that movie has its huge fans, and it also helped develop his technical abilities. It didn't make anywhere near the waves in 1977 that Steve's buddy George did with Star Wars. And we absolutely loathed 1941, his World War II comedy farce, a sequel to Pearl Harbor framed as Animal House, which not only didn't make us laugh, it made us slump back in our seats desperate for the deafening silence where laughter should have been to finally end. And if it carried on like that, we may not have had the cinema-transforming career of the Steven Spielberg that we know. Thankfully, he came back six years after Jaws with one of the greatest adventure movies of all time, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And joining us, fresh from the Chrono Trigger show, is Kevin Vey. Hello again, Kevin. Hi. I don't know if this was on TV or if my father rented it, but I sat and watched it late in an evening for me as a kid. I must have been four or five uh, with my father. Just, And I was kind of bowled over because it's, for you know, when you're a kid used to kids' movies, it's very grown up. 
uh, but things oh, yeah. keep happening that are really exciting. So I was riveted. And oh, yeah. uh, by the end, my jaw was on the floor and I was just this. It was one of the greatest cinematic experiences of my life, despite not being in the cinema. The Indiana Jones series was a collaboration between Spielberg and George Lucas. Just as Star Wars was a revival of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers' space operas, Indy drew from the kind of Saturday morning matinee pulp serial that enthralled them both as boys. The role of Indy himself was bouncing around Hollywood for a while, with Tim Matheson auditioning, which would have been disastrous, uh, Tom Selleck, which would have been good, and finally, fresh from his second turn as Han Solo in The Empire Strikes Back, Harrison Ford. Now, given Ford was a carpenter on movie sets a few years beforehand, someone astonishingly fortunate enough to score the role of Solo... The fact that he was given the indie role as well makes for a double whammy of iconic cinematic heroes in a very short space of time, which few others can boast. It'd be like Chris Evans getting the Captain America role and then walking into playing Superman. And then those films being instant classics too. Or if Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes had been as beloved by everyone as he was by me. We'll probably be doing Sherlock Holmes later this year as well. And even then, Holmes, Stark, Kent, Rogers, these were all long-established fictional characters. Solo and Jones were crafted around and are iconic because of Harrison Ford and his screen presence. James Earl Jones as Mufasa and Darth Vader. That's the equivalent. The Dark and Light Fathers. That's the like the two-hander of like totally memorable as two major iconic characters in a relatively short space of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's others out there, but uh, it's this is this is unusual. Yeah. Since this series has its roots in a bygone age, even during the now bygone age it was filmed there are definitely troublesome elements which we will be addressing along the way just because they're classics yeah doesn't win the indie films get out of criticism free cards we will contextualize and calls it when we seize it so let's continue talking about this movie it isn't likely to be a dive into philosophical deep tissue but most definitely we will be discussing the details that makes this this sequence of relatively simple moves combine into a work of triumphantly gripping and memorable cinema. The first thing you see in this movie is the paramount mountain dissolve into a real one, a motif shared by the four movies made to date. Then you get Indy's absolutely essential and iconic silhouette. And Steve masterfully holds back on his facial features, showing you elements of the costume, designed incredibly carefully by Deborah Nadulman Landis, wife of John, mother of Max. As Dr. Jones, our archaeologist explorer, traverses the land. Make no mistake, the hat The jacket, the shoulder bag, the whip, these are all vital accoutrements in establishing that this character is bigger than the film, bigger even than the actor, 
they layer up who Indy is when he's out in the wild for you. The same as the contrast of his tweed suits and spectacles, which represent his Clark Kent, Professor Jones persona back in the civilized world. And the first thing that happens before he speaks, one of his guides pulls a gun on him behind his back like a coward, and with the whip, Indy disarms the guy, who flees, realizing he's in over his head. It's a gunslinger scene, only nobody got shot. And that is the moment Ford steps into the light, having demonstrated himself as being more than just the cowboy hero, more cunning than Han Solo. They're actually very different characters. Han is a desperate man, always showboating, always on the edge, and always trying to stay one step ahead of his past. Indy is escaping from a normal life to delve into the unknown, quietly, internally wrestling with learned rationality and belief in the supernatural. John Williams starts off quite muted, quite sort of... Like, he's he's not showing off yet. He's not giving you bombast. So you get a lot of... It kind of lends itself well to the jungle atmosphere that you're in, too, which is is really nice. It really sets the tone for the scene, really. So you get a lot of Ben Burtt's soundscapes... And uh, there was this point that um, uh, uh, Spielberg pointed out that uh, he was uh, that he added like a, a strange sounding jungle animal. I don't know if it was Spielberg or Lucas. A strange sounding jungle animal just after the. Poisonous, still fresh. Three days. They're following us. If they knew we were here, they would have killed us already. Right there, that. But it's 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 a way of kind of drawing you in and making you like feel you're there. And there's so many little sound effects that you kind of take for granted, especially because it's a, a Lucasfilm thing. And the amount of like you know gunshots that are carefully uh, put together, the snakes, the the sound of the snakes, because apparently snakes don't tend to vocalize. The snakes are cheese casserole. It's it's like Ben Burt squashing his hands into cheese casserole and going and making this crackling sound and then layering it. And just like every every time I see someone who's really good at foley work, I just I I get this kind of misty eyed like you know I'm totally there with you because obviously yeah. I work in audio. The Golden Idol and this whole trap and tension section. Again, you've got the soundscape of sort of like, uh, you know, uh, it, it gives you the sort of the setup of like, you know, stay out of the light, tension, and then boom, you've got the sort of the, the traps just illustrating the kind of danger that they're in at that point. And then you've, then is when John Williams starts pulling in with the actual theme of the arc, just to sort of like illustrate that you know they are not supposed to be here but then but Williams himself said that that theme is supposed to be kind of tempting sounding they're sort of drawing you in and sort of like pulling out the tension at that stage one of the best things I like about the trap setups is how they 
the set is constructed and the camera shots are set up in such a way that you can see how the traps work. So Indy's being aware of what he's looking for means that our eye is drawn to this patch of light, the interruption of which is going to trigger this trap and mm-hmm. this uh, paving slab with the pressure plate in the centre of it that's going to set off this trap. And then we see him picking his way carefully around it. I think that's a big part of the initial characterization of him because it's important to remember that with Raiders, this is the first time we've ever seen him. And when it first came out, it was not Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was mm. just Raiders of the Lost Ark. They have this core character to sell at this point. Even Spielberg referred to uh, Last Crusade as the third Raiders movie. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. And you've got this combination of, of as you say, the, the sound design, the music, the lighting, the set dressing, and as they go through these passageways, you've now got Molina's reactions to what's going on around him as well. And it just feeds into this sense of Indy being incredibly competent and incredibly brave with a solid helping of luck and impulsivity, mm. but he seems a little bit too measured for you to think it's entirely luck and impulsivity. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? But he also stumbles and then, like, he does the golden idol weighing up and that whole tension scene and, like, it weighs out the sand and it's like, yeah, how could you possibly be exact about this? And it's like, he's sort of like, I'm going to just, like, okay, do the, the, uh, the old switcheroo. And then he gets cocky and kind of like tips his hat to the gods whom he has stolen this statuette from. And then the traps start falling around his ears. And the way he gets out of there is really clumsy. Like he keeps falling on his face when he he trusts the Tipo because he has to. And then he uh, ends up getting betrayed. Then when he's trying to claw his way out of the pit, he grabs the vine. He's like, ha ha. And then the vine's like, no way. And he's like (laughs) falling down. So he's human. Yeah, and it's, it reminds me of Nathan Drake, as in Nathan Drake is very much based on indie in terms of, like, you know, when he jumps, rather than going, ha and I made that because, of course, I have cat-like reflexes. It's like, oh, oh shit, shit, shit! Uh, instead, it's, it's got that feeling of, you know, I can, I can just about handle it and be cool, but when things start flying around me, I might die. And that sense of I might die and him getting punched and hurt and shot and beaten and falling off of things. And like he actually gets straight up clumsy at times. Oh, yeah. Um, it, 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 that, as you say, humanizes him. But it also keeps that measure of, oh, will Indy do this? As opposed to like the serials that it was based on, the heroes of, of, of yore were always just, yes, of course I did that. Other than I my first to try. Be the hero. They were what Zap Brannigan believes himself to be. There's one other little touch in this scene that I love, which is that Alfred Molina is mimicking Indy's movements mm-hmm. as he approaches the idol and does the whole thing with the sandbag and um, the flipping it off the platform and the, the bag of sand onto it. You only catch a couple of frames of it, but it becomes apparent that that's he's 
on the edge of his seat and excited and, and keen to see what's going to happen. So much so that he is uh, shadowing what Indy does, mm. which I thought was yeah. really sweet. Yeah, and, and also when he grabs the idol, you see this wide smile on Melina's mm-hmm. face, almost like, a chi- almost like a child, like, oh my god, you got it! Exactly, awesome. yeah. He's kind of I, the I, kid's stand-in at that point. Yeah, which kind of makes bit, the yeah. sellout a bit frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> a wee bit, yeah. He's Indy's Robin and then they, they flip that on us. Mm, yeah. yeah. So, Adios, senor. Yeah. Drops. And then they give him a, a, a much more faithful Robin in, in terms of short round for the next one. True. True. I, Melina's death is just hilarious, though, because that model doesn't look a bit like him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, to Harrison Ford's credit, he's still kind of just like, "Adios, tipo." His reaction <laughs> is great. Yes. Just, just kind of, just like, like momentary shock, and then be like, "Oh, well, he got what he he got his whatever. I'm out of here." <laughs> now, this is one of the uh, bits that's uh, a little more uncomfortable by today's standards, because when he gets out of there with this golden idol that is clearly really precious to the Hovidos natives they've you know all got their spears pointed at him uh, he absolutely intended to take it back to America sell it to Marcus Brody so that it could be in a museum and we can talk throughout the series regarding what motivates Indy because that whole it belongs in a museum gets repeated over and over again in the third film uh, but at this point, like effectively, just going to hot countries, taking their precious things, and bringing them back to our country, is what the British Empire did. It's it's what America did. It's it's colonialism, and it fucking sucks. And Belloc manipulating the native people is even more so. But two wrongs don't make a right. Definitely. That Indy starts here gives him only somewhere else to go from here. Anyway, so, let's get us back to him being a teacher. He's convincing enough. It, uh, uh, you know, we, we get I, that. I actually think it was pretty convincing in the tweet and everything. Yeah. It just it made a nice duality between, you know, the, the badass and the leather and the kind of soft-spoken teacher and the tweed and the bow tie and everything. Yeah. But, but one thing I also kind of like is that, you know, with, when it comes to women, when he's on adventures with them, he's very kind of just like, you know, he's, you know, it's like he's kind of almost like James Bond. But when it comes to like the the female student having love you on her eyelids and everything, mm. he's all like, uh, what, what? Yeah. You know, he's kind of awkward about it, like almost like he's trying to maintain that teacher student boundary thing. Yeah. What that whole thing enables them to set up, though, particularly with him disappearing out of the back window, is in the, the third film. In the third film, yeah, is the the fact that he's he has this position, this teaching position, to facilitate his adventuring. Mm. It's there to give him access to the information about what to go after and where, and the financing to be able to do this. And I, I think there's never really any sense that his primary motivation is anything other than field work and exploration he doesn't like being stuck in the classroom Hmm. he can't spell he had to stop and think how to spell neolithic Yeah, that's not. Uh, his... So I'm not laughing at his inability to spell. No, just no, no. the, the idea just, that it just underlines yeah. the fact that this yeah. is not his natural environment. Yeah, 
Yeah, but but uh, but much like you know when he's you, know, you see him in the opening scene where he's tripping and falling and stuff. In a way, I also feel like that him being a professor as well also helps to humanize him to mm. some extent mm. because Absolutely. learn as much as you can in the field, but the classroom is also just as important, you know. And I feel like that's also a fitting metaphor for you know Indy himself to some mm. extent. Where yeah, it's great that he punches Nazis and does on these great adventures, but the fact that he's a college professor also is very important to him as a character because. Uh, all those other reasons you guys listed, but also to show that he's just a he's a human being with an ordinary life as well as all the adventuring. Yeah, I I, I would trust Spielberg not to uh, have him as soon as that uh, uh, students um, making eyes at him literally uh, to to go. Well, <laughs> how do I hit that without getting fired? Uh, but it feels like Bond would consider it, which is why Indy beats Bond uh, in terms of aging out as a character um but through that yeah although there was that one time that even roger moore was like i'm a little bit too old for this one i'll buy you an ice cream but uh okay so moving on to the setup of the arc this is an incredibly efficient scene Because it, I agree. it sets up what the arc is if you've never heard of it, and a, a lot of people had never. If, if you're, if you were say Jewish and went to uh, you know Hebrew school, of course you'd know all about the Ark of the Covenant, and obviously it means a lot more to uh, um, uh, Spielberg than say uh, the Holy Grail would to uh, uh, to Christians. But um, it sets up the arc. It sets up the Nazis' intentions and thus the stakes. So that whole, um, you know, an army that carries the ark with it is unbeatable. So it's like, right, so if Indy doesn't achieve this, then the Nazis become this supreme power, you know, way earlier. And uh, so obviously it's fictional stakes, but it, it, it puts the impetus on that. So it's more than just about grabbing a MacGuffin and it, it, it puts a fire behind him. It sets up the sub-MacGuffin of the Staff of Ra. So, you know you know why he's following this part of the uh, trail. You, it sort of sets up Abner Ravenwood so that you can then correlate that with Marion, who you're about to meet. Um, and it, in with the whole lightning, fire, power, God thing, informs and creeps out the audience. You get the arc theme again, and just static imagery showing you, like, A this is what it can do. And B, when it does do that, it's like, well, they set it up earlier. So it's, it's like I say, extremely efficient. Also featuring William Hootkins, who played who? Eckert, sir. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, okay, let's listen to just this scene and just this effectively exposition dump for how efficient Lawrence Kasdan, writer of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens, is when it comes down to laying down stakes, intent, and atmosphere. Army intelligence. They knew you were coming before I did. See to know everything. Couldn't tell me what they want. What do I want to see them for? What am I, in trouble? So already we've got Indy's mistrust of these men we're about to meet. And they're supposed to be government men, the ones on our side. Which calls into question this guy, which lays down shades of grey. Yeah, Dr. Jones, we've heard a great deal about you. Have you? Uh, professor of archaeology, expert on the occult, 
And uh, how does one say it? Obtainer of rare antiquities. One way of saying it. Why don't you sit down? You'll be more comfortable. Thank you. Thank you. Indy sets his briefcase down really pretty hard on the table, creating that clang sound. And when he says, sit down, you'll feel more comfortable, he means, I'll feel more comfortable. Yes, you're a man of many talents. Uh, you studied under Professor Ravenwood at the University of Chicago. Yes, I did. You have no idea of his present whereabouts? Uh, just rumors, really. Somewhere in Asia, I think. I haven't really spoken to him for ten years. We were friends, but, uh, had a bit of a falling out, I'm afraid. Mm. Dr. Jones, now, you must understand that this is all strictly confidential, eh? I understand. Uh, <clears throat> so at that mention of a falling out, we already know Indy is not only uncomfortable with the men he's talking to, but the past situation they're bringing up. Yesterday afternoon, our European sections intercepted a, a German communique that was sent from Cairo to Berlin. Now, you see, over the last two now, years, the Nazis have had teams of archaeologists running around the world looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. Hitler's a nut on the subject. He's crazy. He's obsessed with the occult. And right now, apparently, there's some kind of German archaeological dig going on in the desert outside of Cairo. Now, we've got some information here, but we can't make anything out of it, and maybe you can. So that's our overarching villain, Hitler. Tannis development proceeding. Choir headpiece, staff of Ra, Abner Ravenwood, U.S. A garbled message suggesting something they're looking for, two sub-MacGuffins, which are actually the same thing, and the person they're connected to, which thus connects to Indy. Nazis have discovered Tannis. Just what does that mean to you, uh, Tannis? Well, well the city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you what mean, do you mean Commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Did you guys ever go to Sunday school? Well, I... Oh, look. So this is Indy filling in us dunces who don't know anything about religious artifacts on the significance of exactly what the Nazis are supposed to be looking for. And from the get-go, it's whether it's supernatural or not, it is an incredibly powerful symbol. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, where it stayed for many years until all of a sudden, whoosh, is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishan. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 BC, and he may have taken the ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber. So we're getting from this, from the mouths of historians. Records from back at that time were spotty at best. In other words, a lot of this is guesswork. But they do say secret chamber, which makes everybody sit up and take notice. However, about a year after the pharaoh had returned to Egypt, the city of Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm which lasted a whole year, wiped clean by the wrath of God. Now, what Marcus is doing here, and by the way, his words cause everybody in the room to pause and think about what he said, is saying the reason this thing is mysterious is because calamity surrounds it. It accounts for why the city is lost and buried in sand, and it also suggests that people who steal the Ark 
might be biting off more than they can chew. And his interpretation is wiped clean by the wrath of God. But you can still allow for people to go, well, that's just a sandstorm that lasts a whole year. The story allows for belief in the occult or rationality right up until the point where the Almighty reveals himself rather spectacularly. Uh, obviously, we've come to the right man. Now, you seem to know uh, all about this tennis. No, no, not really. Ravenwood is the real expert. Abner did the first serious work on tennis. collected some of its relics. Was his obsession, really. And listen to Ford's performance. This is a simple film, and yet he's folded into that. Layers of regret. Introspection. And once you've seen The Last Crusade, you can interpolate all kinds of comparisons between Henry Jones Sr. and Abner Ravenwood, which, of course, might make Indy reflect on himself. But he never found the city. Frankly, we're somewhat suspicious of Mr. Ravenwood, uh, American being mentioned so prominently in a secret Nazi cable. Oh, rubbish. Ravenwood's no Nazi. Well, what did the Nazis want him for, then? Well, obviously, the Nazis are looking for the headpiece to the staff of Ra, and they think Abner's got it. What exactly is a headpiece to the staff of Ra? Well, the staff is just a stick. I don't know, about this big. Nobody really knows for sure how high it is. It's, it's, uh... Capped with an elaborate headpiece in the shape of the sun with a crystal in the center. And what you did was you take the staff to a special room in Tadness, a map room with a miniature of the city all laid out on the floor. And if you put the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, the sun shone through here and made a beam that came down on the floor here and gave you the exact location of the Well of the Souls. Where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, right? Which is exactly what the Nazis are looking for. And there you have it. He has literally described for us the events of the middle of this film. So that when they're happening, we're like, okay, I get why you're doing this. What does this Ark look like? There's a picture of it right here. Listen to the atmosphere change. With the simple inclusion of textbook imagery and John Williams' score. Men of business who've been discussing tangible information are presented with something they don't understand and that shouldn't be possible. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. Power of God or something. To understand Hitler's interest in this. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. There's a moment that I really like, which is when they bring up Abner and he talks about the fact that they had this falling out. There's this sideways glance that sets up this where we're going to go with that, which obviously at this point the audience doesn't know anything about. And then as Indy begins his journey, there's a sequence that's now so iconic, so twinned with Indiana Jones, so understood to be one of the building blocks of an adventure story that I didn't even put it on my notes. And I almost forgot about it. Travelling by map. It's even a gag in the Muppets film. Indy is represented by a red line crossing the globe. Thank you. 
cut to Nepal and we meet uh, Marion and uh, they went out of their way to make her not just the damsel in distress. The first thing you do when you meet Karen Allen, uh, well, sorry, the first thing you do, the first thing you witness is she's drinking some dude under the table who looks like he's got this sort of beery red face so it looks like he can handle his drink just about. And uh, yeah. she's got that sort of way of coming back from slumping and, uh, and and winning out while he sort of goes under the table, which sets her up later on as, you know, f- throughout the film as someone who's got resilience. And then the first thing she does when she meets Indy is punch him. Oh, yeah, I love that too. <laughs> Especially mid-sentence, no less. I mean, mm. it's like, I need something your father had. Boom, right in the chin. Well, she's she's painted straight off the bat as this young woman in a very harsh and hostile environment who's managed to carve out a place of independence and safety for herself. And when we find out that she, in the process of all of this, has lost her father, then the dominoes of what comes next in terms of her relationship with Indy kind of outlines this desire to maintain control of of what she's set up around her the whole not wanting to let him know that she's got the medallion on her she knows exactly what it is that he's looking for but she will call the shots as to when and where he'll talk she'll talk to him about it Mm. yeah kind of like like you know towards the end of that sequence when the bar is all burning to hell and everything and she's and she's holding up like i'm your goddamn partner now (laughs) you know that that just really establishes who she is like like instantly not, not that the drinking under the table thing didn't, but it still it really just solidifies it. Is what I mean. So she's set up as strong and confident and in charge of this bar. And Karen Allen's performance is fantastic from the get go. Aside from just getting through this whole drinking contest thing in what feels like a really naturalistic way, there is a measure of hurt in her eyes while she's shouting at him. It's a vulnerability, and then she overcompensates. And she sends Indy packing, but with the potential for future adventure there. But it's going to be on her terms. And then enter the Gestapo. Ron Lacey as Tot, a thankless task as this oily, um, kind of horrifying Gestapo guy. I, uh, I, I tied it's like it. Peter Lorre. Yeah, like- yeah, that was that was definitely very intentional. It's uh, there's there's obviously a Bogart in Casablanca uh, feel uh, for um, Indy. He's even dressed like him at the beginning of Temple, um, and uh, and and this was Peter Lorre. So uh, the. I tied up the Gestapo with Lyra to Darth Vader so she could kind of understand what the hell these guys are and what Vader effectively started out as before he became this dark father thing and just this guy who was about intimidation and torture and leaning on people for information and uh, terror tactics, which is exactly what Tot is here. He is utterly despicable. And he gets, and we'll talk about this at the end, the best, most satisfying cinematic death of all time. And he screams like a little girl during that scene too, which indeed. makes it even more satisfying. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, the, this the the actual the way the scene plays out because Indy's obviously not there, and you've just got Marion kind of tough talking it. Uh, it's it's a slow erosion of her control on the situation until she is about to be horribly tortured uh, to the point where he sort of turns up and says so. Again, this is not uh, a, a a modern way of uh, of handling it, but at least Marion gets to 
be better than the kind of representation that would have been few, several decades before. It's a midpoint. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's like a, it's a bridging the gap. Yeah. And honestly, I think I, I really like Marion as an example of a, a woman in an adventure story who gets to be impulsive, decisive, scared, and in control of, of the situation, hmm. naive, and yet relatively comfortable when she's in her own zone. Yeah. She's a, she's a very, I don't. I don't want to use the term mixed bag, but there's, there is a lot of variety to her character and how it manifests. She's multifaceted. And exactly. And so that, makes her, mm. so that makes her more interesting and more engaging than a simply a tough woman who is able to deal with whatever gets thrown at her. But there comes a point where you're like, well, OK, but then I know she's just going to deal with whatever gets thrown at her. Yeah, Exactly. If she's if she's too tough, then it becomes uh, again. It's like Indy landing with cat like reflexes every single time. There's that yeah. uh, weakening of the characters in a way that strengthens them. And there is a place for that. There is absolutely a place for that. There's yeah. massive empowerment in um, Sarah Connor carving a channel through everything that stands in front of her in Terminator 2. Mm. But also her character gets that extra depth and engagement when that drops. Mm. To Cairo and Salah as the guide. Um, we're not going to talk at extreme length about John Reese Davis. I think uh, you can probably check out a couple of episodes of We Hate Movies where they talk about how he uh, has dis- become problematic. Become problematic age. in more recent years, <laughs> and it's a damn shame because we absolutely adored him as Salah, then adored him as Gimli, and oh, yeah. uh, then he started ranting about Christianity being under fire, and it sucked. Uh, but uh, at least I, th- I can still enjoy Salah as a character, even if I don't enjoy the casting. Um, and that is, I suppose, the best way of uh, kind of um, salvaging uh, an element yep. from this film. Mm-hmm. Cairo. It is a slightly thorny scenario in that we are already in a country that uh, has, you know, it, it's, there's colonial overtones already. Um, Luckily, with Salah, uh, although he's he played by a, a British man, he uh, th- there's a lot of involvement with him and uh, the locals, his friends, his children, his family. So it feels very much like Indy's working with the people rather than bulldozing in and forcing people to work for him, which is clearly what the Nazis are doing. Sorry, John Rhys Davis is of course Welsh. Yeah, and also it's kind of it's I mean it's kind of shown anyway that Indy and Sala already have a bit of a relationship oh, yeah. at the time too. Like they yeah. shake the hands and Indy's like, I knew the Germans would hire you, Sala, almost like with an air of familiarity. Like that, like oh, they've been on a they've been in an adventure sometime yeah. before, you Absolutely, know. Yeah. So uh, this isn't their first rodeo. Yeah, and uh, they went back to Tunisia uh, to uh, do the Cairo scenes rather than uh, going to Egypt because uh, Lucas had already uh, shot there in uh, Star Wars four years previously. They knew roughly what they were doing. There's even some location repetition, but the uh, uh, valley where R2 gets ambushed by um, Jawas, the... Uh, well, hold on, R2, 
bit just before they film on the sand crawler is the Belloc, I'm going to blow up the Ark bit. It's that canyon. Um, And it it made sense for them to go back. Unfortunately, filming in any ridiculously hot country or place like that, um, you're going to get sickness. And I think it's we probably don't even really have to go into that much detail about this notorious story regarding everybody getting the galloping shits while while they were filming in uh, in Tunisia. Just uh, 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 apart from Spielberg, who lived only on canned goods and bottled water, everyone else who ate at restaurants got very sick. Uh, Leading up to the Cairo Swordsman fight, we actually uh, watched um, various deleted scenes, which were... There's this really nice little featurette that's kind of on location with Raiders uh, on the uh, Blu-ray, where they've kind of spliced the archival footage with deleted material to give you the context so it's it's almost like they were riffing this like so we, we were going to have a full fight here with Indy and the swordsman and he's going to close in on you here and slash at you and then and, and Indy was going to use his whip as a weapon uh, against the sword and uh, Han, Han and uh, Indy Harrison was just riddled with dysentery that day just was sweating bullets sick to death sick to his stomach just didn't want to be there and said how about i just shoot him and he did I, ultimately it's almost like the guy uh, the uh, Kara swordsman was like i've been looking forward to this for a long time yes i'll bet you have my monkey and then just blows him away it's a hilarious kind of brings the house down scene but yeah. like I said, with the deleted scenes sort of spliced in in context, it almost made it feel more like jazz. Like they were like, well, let's try this and we'll improvise and we'll see what works yeah. and what doesn't. And some of the stuff that got discarded was was fun, but like what ended up in the final film was gold. Yeah, and also another thing about that scene I really like is that it almost feels like the guy who's playing the swordsman wasn't really prepared to be doing the shooting thing. Mm. And he basically just prat falls over like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, most likely he was hired for his sword abilities, not his falling over abilities. <laughs> also, this is a, a time that John Williams kind of takes over and he gives you the feeling for the, the Cairo fight. Like, if you put much more dramatic music during all of this, like, basket chase and the punching and the shooting, it, it becomes a different flavour of scene. But with John Williams... It's saying, you're supposed to be having fun here, isn't this fun? And largely you are born up in that, and you kind of uh, you, you forget the fact that he's effectively just causing chaos in a marketplace and all kinds of damage. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, pretty much everything Indy does in this film is excusable as we really can't let the Nazis get hold of the Ark. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, the whole bad behavior uh, while you're on holiday thing, this one's fine. The music is absolutely key to the tone of Indiana Jones as a whole I would say but this specifically the there's a couple of moments where funny things are happening but because John Williams music remains serious and vaguely threatening Mm -hmm. you don't lose that edge of tension just because everybody's laughing the music of Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the finest collections of John Williams' work in one place. His themes are absolutely key to the tone of this. There's not 
an overabundance of them. It's not a ridiculous range of them, but each one of them keys in so powerfully with an aspect of the film, which again is an uncomplicated movie. You've got the uh, uh, the, the the Cairo theme, Marion's theme, which is the romance one. It's got a sadness and a melancholy to it, which kind of suggests it didn't work out before. And then when she effectively explodes at this point, because you've had this theme already and Indy starts to mourn her, you buy it. It sells this sense of of kind of sweeping tragedy. It's it's the equivalent of across the stars from Attack of the Clones, only attached to a relationship you give a shit about. Mm. And you write about... Sorry, I know people love the prequels. You write about it having been planted earlier on. There is a strain of Marion's theme when they're in the office talking about the art. It's just there for a second and then it's gone. Because when they're talking about Raven... When they're talking about Abner and, and the falling out, yeah. And it, for some reason, this just the the romance theme for for Raiders, the the Marion theme, just gets to me like each time because it's got this. It, it feels like it, it happened in the past, and it's like you know these people are now long gone, and and, and it's sort of a romantic it, it, look back, you know. It, it's very wistful. Yeah. yeah. And the arc theme, the da, 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 which we'll of course get to in a couple of really key scenes, absolutely like the top ten best bits of John Williams' uh, composition, right there. The the desert chase, the whole like the the pacing of the whole thing. It was like Williams was watching it intently and going, right now we've got a sort of a basic sort of rhythm to this whole thing, but we need to like play it through in sections as to where Indy is in this chase and whether he's winning or whether he's losing. And it's it's you know expert is almost as expertly measured as the asteroid field chase, which I think just slightly edges it out out for me from uh, Empire. Um, and then there's the Raiders March, which I think um, uh, anecdotally John Williams brought to Spielberg uh, two different themes for Indiana Jones. He said, right, okay, so I've got theme one. And Spielberg was like, love it, fantastic. What was the other one? And Spielberg said to John Williams, could you not do both? And I'm kind of baffled that Williams didn't look at part A and part B and go, well, these slot together perfectly without being told by Steven Spielberg. He's like the greatest composer of our time. But apparently he needed just that little nudge to go, oh, yeah, they do work together. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you're being very creative on certain things... Might be too close to it. Belloc 
Uh, as we met already uh, said, an absolutely fantastic nemesis comes to Indy when he's at his lowest point here. He's got a hookah there, and I think uh, I, I mentioned to uh, Lyra that he's like Jabba the Hutt at this point, just sort of like sitting there, oh, 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 oh. And uh, the, uh, again, Harrison Ford selling this sense of just, I am done. The fact that Harrison Ford was... Done. Riddled and done at this point, <laughs> probably you know helped helped into that. So like he was just using it, and, and also the fact that he just doesn't want to take any bull from anyone, especially Belloc, yeah. his rival. You know, especially you know, especially when uh, Belloc's all like, "You are much alike. We are much alike," yeah. and all that stuff. And he's like, "Do you know uh, what it'd be? Uh, you know, I could find someone who matches me on that level." And Indy just tries to try the local sewer. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like just... Joker and Batman. Like you know, I, like Joker's obsessed with Batman, but it's Lego Batman who's like, I like you and I have got nothing going on well, at this point. If you, I think that may possibly be an outcrop of the uh, the ideological clash be- that's going on between Belloc and Tot, because the the essence of that is is something I've seen a few times in Spielberg movies. He likes to give us a range of antagonists and make it clear that just because they are or consider themselves to be morally relatively neutral, mm. they're still standing next to Nazis. Yeah, look And that you are. makes them bad. Like, I don't care that he has this sort of, I'm in this for the history. Yes, but you're hanging out with the Gestapo. Mm. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, very, very fortunately, we got the kids to bring Indy back from the edge because, like I said, he's he's got this yeah. kind of, you want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. I got nothing better to do. He's like, he's really fatalistic at this point. And, and really pissed off, yeah. too. Yeah. I was I doing mean, Jack Nicholson. And then all the kids come in, like, Uncle Indy, Uncle Indy. And that actually brought, and, uh, and, and to Belloc's credit, he actually derives some amusement from it. Mm. And he has a bit of a smile on his face when he's like, next time, Dr. Jones, it'll take more than children to save you. Yeah. I love Hell. the fact that Belloc has a line. There's certain things Belloc won't do and considers distasteful, I, and he's not hugely cruel. Yeah. And like the, uh, he's he wants to win, but he doesn't want to be a an enormous murderous monstrous prick doing it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's also highlighted like when uh, like later on in the movie when yeah. uh, the Nazis toss Marion into the pit with Indy. And he's just like, no, don't. And then, and then after a while, he's just like, oh, what? A, he has this look like, oh, what a waste. And he's mm. like, it wasn't meant to be, shall he? You know, and walks <laughs> off. He actually thought he had a chance there. Yeah. <laughs> she was yeah. totally he, playing he, he him the whole wistful. time. I do. Was, uh, yeah, he looked kind of wistfully disappointed. Mm. I do. Like really he thought like- he could get the woman that Indy coveted. I don't know. I I, I said that. I, I, he he. he <laughs> Uh, something along the lines of he wants to cuck Indy, mm. like, and I have take your woman, ha ha ha. Indeed, it's part of this this rivalry that he sees between the two of them. There is no you us. and me. We Belloc. don't exist. Um, but the I, I really like the moment when he's talking about the watch. Mm-hmm. This is a ten dollar cheap watch that I picked up from a, a stall. But if I bury it for a thousand years, it becomes priceless. priceless. No, dude, landfills are full of mm. cheap crap that we've thrown away. It's not priceless. Yeah. This is <laughs> the, much, yeah. the first issue of 
an image comic that wasn't Spawn. Mm. <laughs> but if I bury it in a comic box <laughs> for 50 years, it's still worth about five quid. <laughs> There's the hypnotic decryption and dates scene here. It starts the scene with the, the scary guy with the... We haven't even mentioned the monkey. <laughs> the scary guy with the eye patch poisons the dates. Yeah. In fact, I, speaking of the monkey, apparently it took 50 takes for that monkey to do the Nazi salute. Good. <laughs> Good. I would like that monkey not to feel like, you know, that the, the, the Ziegheil comes naturally to him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, and then as soon as they'd done 50 takes, you couldn't stop him doing it, I'm assuming. Well, well, they eventually apparently accomplished it by holding a grape on a fishing line out of reach so that the monkey could just reach for it. Oh, Nice. <laughs> It's yeah. it's bone chilling watching this monkey zig Heil. But like, like when you're a kid, you're like, ah, oh, it's a monkey. And then the monkey betrays Marion, uh, and you know, apparently to her death at this point. And yeah. uh, it betrayed Marion to her death. And so, so when you get the bad dates scene, and they're, they're doing the whole like drawing you it there's a wonderful like bit of model work in the background you know you never really look in the background of, of of scenes like this but there's some beautiful matte paintings christ i miss matte paintings in films but so um, do i but there's like a, a model of what is of cairo with lights on outside you're you know behind this the guy who's decrypting the um uh the, the headpiece you know and take back one kadan and it just like really sort of sets the scene and especially when the wind blows through as soon as he kind of like as soon as they've got it uh, and and you and Indy's holding this date like the whole time and you're like it's poison it's poison it's poisoned and then sort of throws it up in the air and when you're a kid you're like no cuz when you're a kid the hero could just die and then you've got no film and then so Salah's like Fum bad dates and just to punctuate that point it cuts to the monkey dead they killed the nazi monkey and it just like when you're a kid that just floors you i can't figure out how bellick did it where do you get a copy of the headpiece there are no pictures no duplicates of it anywhere i tell you only what i saw with my own eyes a headpiece like that one Uh, except around the edges which were rougher in the center the frenchman had embedded a crystal and and surrounding the crystal, on one side, there were raised markings, just like that one. They made the calculations in the map room? This morning. We look in the boss German, Dietrich. When they came out of the map room, they gave us a new spot in which to dig. Out away from the camp. The well is souls, huh? Come, come, look, look here, look. Sit down. Come, sit down. What is it? This is a warning not to disturb the Ark of the Covenant. What about the height of the staff? So did Bella get it off of here? Yes, it is here. This was the old way. This means six kadam height. About 72 inches. Wait! And take back one kadam to honor the Hebrew god whose ark this is. You said their headpiece only had markings on one side. Are you absolutely sure? Belloc's staff is too long. They're, They're digging, digging in, in the, the wrong, wrong place. place. 
<laughs> I am the monarch of the sea. I am the ruler of the queen. It's an excellently done scene. Did you have something to say about the and take back one kadan? Because you were asking about the wording. Yeah, on that. it was to do with the taking one away. Because this staff was constructed by the Egyptians who stole the ark, or it came to them and then they hid it. I think there was a war and it yeah. was obtained. It, it ended up with them. Yeah. But the the diff that it kind of outlines the difference between the two cultures because the Egyptian approach. So if the Egyptians who famously made slaves of the ancient Hebrews. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Continue. Just just in case people needed some context context there. <laughs> but the 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 point being that they are all about your gold inlay and everything being very fancy and over the top and mm. elaborate and the Hebrew approach being more about well we're nomads so we can only carry so much so mm. you know dial it back a bit um and sacrificing something to that god and it just kind of it felt to me like a moment of respect and recognition mm. for this piece of, of cultural history and, and spiritual importance that they have obtained, which the Nazis are obviously displaying none of whatsoever. Yeah. And so they rank way below the ancient Egyptians. Absolutely. And particularly yeah. because... Although, yes, in the original setup, the implication is that the Nazis want to use the Ark as a weapon, mm. that there's that, there's that connotation for it. But you've also got the symbolic level of their acquisition of Jewish artefacts generally, yeah. and that this is the ultimate Jewish artefact. Yeah. And it almost feels like Hitler would want it as a fuck you. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that because I was just thinking about it as a weapon the whole time. But yeah, it is the it's like obtaining the actual cross as a colossal fuck you yeah. to Christians. It's it's stealing yeah. the word of God or indeed the from grail. Jews. Yeah, yeah. The reason they're digging the wrong place is because it says that the medallion they had was only uh, had something writing on one side. Mm. There's actually, I think, a, I read about this recently, but apparently there's a scene in the novelization about how the Nazis got another medallion. Apparently, like, if you remember in that bar fight scene with Marion and all that stuff, mm -hmm. uh, Tote actually, or however you say the name, burns his hand yeah. on the on the medallion, right? And uh, well, and you see that burn mark on his uh, palm in a later scene. Uh, apparently, Belloc uh, and the novelization took a mold of that <laughs> Tote's hand to based off of that burn mark, so that he could, you know, craft his own little staff of Ra, so he could know where to dig and put a little crystal in there. Even so. even not actually knowing that they took a cast of it, when Tot turns back up again, gives the Heil Hitler, and you've got the impression of that burn mark in his hand. That allows you to put two and two together and go, "This is how they got." that information mm. and you now know why because they don't have the other side they're digging in the wrong place Absolutely. it's a wonderful exactly. moment of ah and again this is why Lawrence Kasdan should have written the prequels mm. yeah yeah it's a uh, yeah nice little little details I love that yeah. <laughs> And then we get the map room scene, which is, again, showcasing this arc music. And this, I think, is 
The first instance, really, of the tug of war between established facts and mysticism in these films. Because what's happening here technically is just being done through the documented science of what uh, of what Indy has you know established through his reading and research you know just stand here put the stuff in there have the headpiece at the right height and it'll shine through but clearly the way it's shot what's going on is spiritual it's something he is being shown the way in a very vivid fashion and it is spine tingling as a piece of cinema yeah uh, to kind of play off of that a little bit too um, is uh, also like there's that moment of dramatic wind that happens when they're t- discussing the medallion yeah. and, uh, thing and also while they're actually digging up uh, in the well with the well of souls there's like a big storm brewing and everything um while I was watching this as a movie as a movie night with one of my a few of my friends in a discord server it was like one of my friends is Jewish and he wanted to see it because he hadn't seen it before mm. When he that scene was playing out, I mean, I hadn't really thought of this before, but when he saw the storms happening and stuff, he was like, "I don't think God is very happy about the ark about being to be uncovered." Yeah, and I was just, and I was just like, "Wow!" And I just thought the storms were were for dramatic effect. Uh, I, I that floored me because I I hadn't seen this movie for years and hadn't thought of it. And he ha- came to that conclusion just during his first viewing, and that really impressed me. You could make that a reading on this film that an unseen support character is Jehovah himself, this Old Testament Hebrew God who is abiding by what's going on and can't actively take a hand in it. Like, he can't smite them with lightning until the proper time. As soon as he gets his opportunity, though, he does... But it's oh, it's God. kind of like he's he's like guiding Indy, like get this thing away from them. Not yeah. wanting to read too much into the Almighty, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that that plays into the ways. Last Crusade as well, as in like they are knights trying to you know fight for the forces of good and prevent the forces of evil from obtaining this precious artifact, which if the Almighty had complete dominion over absolutely everything would render all of mankind's actions entirely impotent. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's part of what lies behind the this needs to be in a museum mentality is it needs to be protected from people who want to use them for evil ends. Mm. It's just that ultimately there is also a really it ought to be in the hands of the people who it belongs to which is sort of sidestepped.
Also, around about this time, he, uh, um, Indy in disguise, run, uh, runs through the uh, Nazi camp, finds Marion still alive, bound up in the tent. And I was conf- when I first saw this, I was confused. I was like, "Hang on, is this a new woman?" Like, how? I saw her explode. And, uh, like, you know, obviously when you're four, you can't rewind the damn thing and go, hang on a second. Um, so uh, it's it's kind of harsh, the fact that he sort of, yeah, she's so happy to see him um, after, you know, being kind of furious at him. And then he's like, yeah, I kind of have to leave you here because if I take you, then they'll be looking for you. And it, I was thinking, like, you know, is Indy being a pig here? No, he's being really sensible. Like they will. Oh, yeah. like, if you, she's if gone, at, then they will look for her. Yeah, and if you also look at at Indy's face, like while he's saying this to her, he looks totally crestfallen about like I hate that I'm doing this, yeah. leaving you here with these assholes. But I have no other alternative here. Yeah. I have to leave you here, otherwise, like this whole thing that I want to do in order to find the Ark is going to be. Mm. Shit. And there are such huge stakes here that ultimately Marion can fall by the wayside. Mm. But he is basically being indie. He is being practical and thinking about the the long-term ramifications of these actions and not the immediate protective Mm. impulse that's there. And what I love is, immediately after that, when she gets engaged to uh, the drinking contest with Belloc, she's like, right, okay, so Indy isn't going to save me. Fine, I'll save myself. So when she's presented with the dress, and he's like, I would very much like to see you in it. Ha! I'll bet you would. And they, like, Steve and her, again, like, with this jazz, kind of worked out, why would she put this dress on? And then they worked out the knife aspect of it. Like, she's going to escape... And so she decides to use her feminine wiles. It's a bit of a Charlie's Angels thing, but at the same time, ultimately in a pinch, it's her being wily. It also plays into the fact that she is still relatively youthful. She Mm. is still relatively naive. Her feminine wiles are not that well developed. Mm. It's it's something that she kind of grabs at, but she doesn't have a whole fully formed plan there. And ultimately, what she falls back on is the thing she is skilled at, which is drinking. drinking. She's like, (laughs) you can drink this guy under the table, no problemo. Yeah, I love that. And also the fact that they're they're drinking this down like it's water. And Mm. she's like, what is this stuff? And Belloc's like, it's my family label. I grew up on this stuff, which implies that apparently he grew up in a vineyard as well as doing all this other stuff. I mean, is there anything that Belloc can't do? I yeah, mean- but it also that unseats her plan. So it, as with Indy, like she's like, okay, I can handle this. I can't quite handle this. And she is actually drunk at that point and then gets sobered up very quickly when uh, Ron Lacey turns up as, uh, as Tot. And then there's that coat hanger skit. Oh, I love that Sort gag. of pulls out that thing and it's like, oh my God, is that like torture implement, nunchucker? And then Williams just plays with you. He's like, oh my God, oh yeah. my God. And then holds it and then just silences. It goes, and then he kind of goes, and, and you also yeah. see the, and also you see the audible bit of relief on Paul Freeman's so face. Like, oh, yeah. thank God. Like if, but, also, uh, like, if Belloc's scared, then you're like, okay, so who's in charge here? And if you listen very carefully in the background of this scene, you can hear jackals howling because Ben Burt's a genius and our natural fear of predators in the dark heightens our attention. Perhaps we'll meet someday under better circumstances. We meet again, Fräulein. You Americans, you're all the same. 
Always overdressing for the wrong occasions. <laughs> Apparently, it was a recycling of a gag that uh, Spielberg wanted to use in 1941, and Christopher Lee actually performed it, but it didn't make the cut. So Spielberg was determined to get it into any movie he could, and it ended up being this one. Thank God it did not get thrown into the trash compactor that was 1941. Yeah. When, uh, when that gag played out and stuff, my my friend who's Jewish like, saw the guy pulling out the thing, thinking he'd torture him, he was like, he, he audibly said, oh, shit. And then all of a sudden, it, when it turns into a coat hanger, he just lost it. Like, he started <laughs> laughing. He started like, uh, he's just like, oh, my God. So he it still like, hits home after 40 years. Yeah. Nice. And he, I, yeah, and he said that he said that was probably, like, his favorite gag in the movie. Yeah, so. it's it's great, and it's, it's, it's handled expertly. Okay, so The Well of Souls, a.k.a. My Nightmares Forever... <laughs> The ass. very dangerous. You go first. <laughs> this and, and then it. he just looks at him like you've got to be shitting. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they just as whatever John Reese Davis became in his personal life, his delivery as Salah is absolutely on point for every single line, and he knows when to go from bad dates, like serious, and that 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 line about it is something men is not meant to discover. Death has always surrounded it. Like he's he can go do brilliantly serious. And then he can also be like, Mirror! during the snake. It's almost bit. like Patrick Stewart, really, because uh, yeah, like this very dignified presence when he's when he needs to be, but also just a little bit of little sparks of humor here and there. It's Absolutely, just, it's good. Absolutely, it's, that's what I love about actors like John Reese Davies, mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart, stuff is that sometimes is that they can do like really comedy stuff, but even though, and they can do the drama really well as well. It's just they and it's like almost like it's just effortless for them. Yeah. You know? John Reese davis scored the Salah role after appearing as Falstaff in Henry IV, a classic Shakespearean character, primarily a comic figure, but with depth. He's a large, vain, boastful and cowardly knight who spends most of his time drinking at the Boar's Head Inn with petty criminals living on stolen or borrowed money. In other words, a thoroughly engaging support role. Or just Han Solo with less forward motion. And uh, oh, I forgot to mention regarding the spiders on Alfred Molina. Uh, apparently, oh, they, they covered him in male tarantulas. And Steve asked, Why aren't they moving? We need them to skitter around. And then the uh, spider wrangler was like, Oh, we need to uh, add a female. And uh, it was like, Okay. So they just brought this female out, put it on Alfred Molina's chest, and immediately all the males went berserk. 
trying to get to the female and like uh, skitter over each other and I was, I was just like okay yep, yep 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 go to your happy place Alex because I have severe arachnophobia possibly brought about by this scene note to self do not commission the arachnophobia movie for this show <laughs> I actually that sat podcast. and watched arachnophobia uh, um, a, a year ago it's not a bad film like it, it's it's like you know, I, uh, oh, okay. first time it's I saw just, it because I remember seeing it was a kid and it kind of yeah. shook me a bit but now that I'm older it doesn't scare me quite as much it's it's a fun kid like kid allowed there aren't many horror movies that kids can watch arachnophobia yeah. works in that regard but, I'd have uh, to show that one to my nephew then yeah <laughs> but the snakes <laughs> were you scared of snakes before you saw this, or was that set off by this Again, I think it was both were exacerbated. Yeah, I mean, it, although I'm not scared of of bugs like like they are in Temple of Doom, I'm not scared of rats. But if you saw this first mm. and got really emotionally engaged with this first, I mean, sometimes those seeing stuff that an adult wouldn't <laughs> necessarily think of as traumatic yeah. when you're too young to contextualise it yeah. can really, really plant some some terror that doesn't need to be there. I mean, I, yeah. for the longest time, had a really ridiculous fear of maggots because of the scene in James Bond where he falls into the drawer of maggots. Licence to kill. Yes. He doesn't fall in, he's pushed. He's pushed. Yes. <laughs> Mike stared in disbelief as his hands fell off. From them rose millions of tiny maggots. Maggots? Maggots. 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 All over the floor of the post office in Leytonstone. But yeah, that's that pretty rational. to get over that one. Apparently during the imagine. filming... Um, they had as many snakes as they could possibly get, all of them non-venomous, and there weren't nearly as enough snakes. They had a bunch of rubber snakes, and then they brought in a bunch of new snakes and threw them in there as well. And I, I, they never answered this question, but it's like, how do like person A brings their collection of snakes, person B brings their collection of snakes, and they mix them all up. How the hell do you get your snakes back out of that malaise? Yeah. Yeah, one of my my favorite things on the behind the scenes stuff is like when they're trying to swish uh, the torches to kind of get the snakes to back off. uh, Spielberg's holding up one of the snakes and holding a torch, and it's like, "You're supposed to hate fire, you're not, but you like fire. You're ruining my movie." (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I had to rewind that, just be like, "Did he really say that? Oh my god, he did. That's so funny." He's a very like uh, fun, cute. He's almost childlike at times. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I just that's what I love about Spielberg as a filmmaker. Most of the time is that he you know, he he takes the work more seriously than he takes himself. You know, yeah. and I just, I great that's an admirable quality for me as a person. And um, the uh, most like oh, despite the fact that they are dubbed asps, very dangerous. Most of these snakes were not venomous at all, except for the cobras, which were very carefully contained in a, a, like a glass enclosure and yeah. you know fame like a famous gaff is that you can ever so slightly see uh, Harrison Ford's reflection in the glass and I'm like I'm glad you can see that I would not want a cobra to be that close to Harrison Ford's face me like, neither <laughs> I, like, I am fine with cracks in these movies if it helps keep stunties alive and, and uh, actors faces unbitten by cobras I'm yeah, yeah. it's not, not a problem I love how after freaking you out with all of these snakes and this sense of super heightened paranoia and anxiety especially if you're claustrophobic and afraid of the dark too Indy smashes down the wall desecrating this tomb 
and Marianne encounters the corpses of all the slaves who built the tomb. And the skeletons scream. There's no reason they should be screaming. But it's just a wonderful 1980s ghost train moment of... Ah! Love it. All these disgusting practical skeletons. And you could read this as not just an additional bunch of scares, but a hearkening forward to the horrifying ruination, body and soul, that awaits those who violate the Ark. sequence which is uh, this Pat Roach who speaking of Kubrick he was the guy who Barry Lyndon had a fist fight with um, is this sort of hey youngin like the big beefy guy who like uh, come here come here (laughs) his destiny in the 70s and 80s was to be the big beefy guy that uh, various people have a fight with in fact Indy's dad fought him in Never Say Never Again threw a cup of wee on him in, Indy fought him again as the um, uh, the, the big thuggy guy in uh, uh, Temple of Doom and he was also General Kale in our Willow show so Pat Roach will probably like has we've been talking about Pat Roach for months now <laughs> Yeah, I think he was like a prof- a British professional wrestler or something yeah. before he became uh, before he got into like movies and stuff. So he's built exactly like the kind of like big bruiser that the the hero. Like if you put him up against Indy, Indy is considerably smaller, and yeah. he's got that kind of like Han Solo fighting style. If he's up up against someone bigger than him, do the whole your shoelaces untied and then kick him in the bollocks uh, thing, which doesn't <laughs> really work in this case. And again, Indy's way out of his depth. So there's this big, like, practical sequence with lots of fire and explosives and, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's tense. And I, I don't think you're supposed to feel like Indy's going to die at this point. Yeah. But it's got that kind of, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Yeah, and, and, the, and the guy's totally implacable, too, because, you know, Indy punches him in the face repeating and you see yeah. blood coming down on his face and stuff. And, the, what, uh, and just the one thing that does him in is being propellered. Yeah, which also receives a bit of an homage in Captain America, the first Avenger, except you actually see what happens. Oh, yeah. Uh, he tosses him directly into a propeller. My, my, in fact, when we when I went to see First Avenger with my mom in the theater uh, for my birthday that year... Uh, we, that was we saw for that my guy. birthday, too, in 2011. Yeah. So weird. Well, it was in... Well, well uh, my birthday's in September, so oh. it was a few weeks after it came out, but okay. still... Uh, but it just kind of. But once the guy got propellered, my mom looked at me like, "Did that just happen?" <laughs> and seeing the stream of blood too, and I'm like, and I'm just like, "Yeah, I think so." And because <laughs> because you don't see it happen in Raiders, you know, you just see the spray of blood across the windscreen or whatever yeah. it is. But it's it's such a fast cut with such a violent <laughs> kind of sound effect that it's like it, it's got little, the impact. <laughs> And that spray sound yeah. afterwards—it's just like. Ugh. I'm trying to imagine in the, especially the early indie films, without blood, and without gore, like that little spattering of danger and and, and sense of yeah. like when when Indy gets shot in the shoulder during the truck chase, and it really yeah. like makes you feel like this is actually happening. You didn't really get blood in Bond films, so this—that's a step up. Well, I was going to say you don't necessarily see what 
causes it, but then I thought, no, Alfred Molina stuck on the side of a spiked gate. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. in general, I kept saying to Sharon, I miss these practical effects so much. And I wonder why modern films don't, like, like one out every so often doesn't go, right, we are going to go as practical as we possibly can. Force Awakens obviously uh, went out of their way to do that as much as they could, and the results were absolutely spectacular. BB-8, 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 practical, 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 practical. I mean, how many home runs can a movie hit? Because if we're keeping score, Team JJ just beat the Yankees by, like, a thousand. I, I would love for more genre, uh, more TV shows to do that too. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, Farscape. Like a lot of uh, two of the main characters on the show were puppets made by the Jim Henson Company, you know, like yeah. Pilot and Rigel. So, People are going know. nuts for Baby Yoda. It feels like that th- uh, having a thing there helps everyone. I can give yeah. you three very good reasons why practical effects are not making a comeback anytime soon. Safety. No. Ease of use. Uh, that kind of feeds into one of my things. Desperation. So you're, you're coming up with even more. Desperation to homogenise everything so that everything feels like everything. Not quite what I was going to say, but... Okay, so <laughs> one, it costs more. Yes. Two... It takes longer. It takes longer. Yeah. And three, it's unpredictable. You yeah. don't know how a practical effect is going to turn out until it's finished. The CG effect, you know exactly what it's going to look like. We'll talk about this when we cover The Mandalorian. They've got a neat kind of somewhere between practical and digital effects. The backgrounds, they've got big screens up. It's the equivalent of a moving matte painting. Mm. What I love about practical is it's that jazz feeling, that, that feeling of, right, what can we do here to make this work? Are you aware of the music known as jazz? Oh. I was going to say, it makes it feel more alive. And yeah, yeah. Rather than, fuck it, we'll do it in post. It makes everything feel that much more interactive. You don't get that sense that these things are happening on different layers of reality and really on some level we know that. And honestly, it feels like Raiders might be like up there with The Empire Strikes Back as absolute pinnacle of practical effects and the burgeoning overlaying the effects that are like in post like the, the lightning and the, um, uh, the, the the fire and the wrath of god type stuff and the, obviously the TIE fighter lasers weren't actually there in, in camera and, and that was how industrial light and magic was sort of like beginning to sort of develop what would become CG later. But that's we, we've said this over and over again that is where visual effects shines it's the enhancement. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like how they, in Spider-Man 2, did a combination of puppeteered tentacles and uh, for the close-ups and CGI ones for the wider shots for Doc Ock's tentacles. It's, yeah. It mix them up, and it'll, it'll, I'll buy it more. I mean, I mean, And immediately following the wing sequence, we've got the uh, desert chase. And this is it's, it's like an ode to stunt people. And all of the... Like, uh, the if you look at, say, Mad Max Fury Road... It's obviously ten times more spectacular. Like, any one sequence in that is ten times more spectacular than, than this truck chase. But you could actually watch every single stunty doing their thing in this desert sequence. And it really feels like people could have been killed.
and they had to yeah. be very, very careful. I, I didn't realize until seeing it very recently in the the extras um, that when Indy is under the truck, the stunty there they had cut a channel in the road, like a little trench, that gave him some extra room underneath his back, just so that he didn't have. Like just just to give him a bit more purchase under the truck, to, so that he wasn't quite so pressed up against it in, in the nose, and you can't see it, and yet it's right there. And so when when you're looking at it, it's because of the texture of the road, it's masterfully done. And the actual whoever was driving the truck clearly had to drive in a very, very straight line to maintain this exact specific channel to keep this person underneath the truck safe. It was just it's it's so beautifully coordinated as a sequence oh definitely it's it's really impressive how they managed to pull it off and also harrison ford kind of got into the stunts a little bit too and oh, it's yeah. a miracle that it's a miracle he didn't get totally duffed up by that yeah that, there's, just, there's a lot remarkable. of close-up stuff here which uh, when you, you need to see indy's reaction and he is hanging off of things it's mind-blowing to me anyway <laughs> just like seeing how just how all these people just did all this physical stuff and they just didn't get killed there's a point where uh, there's like a, a motorbike and sidecar riding along alongside him and Indy is driving and then gives this little grin and then kind of like rams to one side and then we see the reaction after that of like he knows he's going to run them off the road. But there's like this little, like I, I believe the word would be schadenfreude at uh, the happiness at misfortune to Nazis. Yeah. I believe there's like a one point during that scene where, like, before Indy runs him off, like, one of the, one of the dudes actually says, Oh, Scheiser, which means, Oh, shit. Yeah, I caught two Scheisers at least. Okay. In that okay. whole sequence. I, I, yeah. was, I wanted to make sure I, I wasn't the only one who caught that because I, I, I just noticed that mm. on my recent viewing last night. So I was like, Wait a minute, I never noticed that. Well, I, I, another th- reason why the truck chase is actually so um, strong, you kind of, like, some of the Germans trying to get to Indy also perform quite spectacular things as well. There's this one really tenacious guy who like climbs out and are over and round, gets a shot in on Indy, and then like throws himself, like gets thrown out, and, and basically does the hanging off the front that Indy just did, but this time fails. And then there's that brief moment of the side view of the truck clearly running right through the middle of his body as his legs Ow. flail and it says oh moment and it just again deeply satisfying but it, yeah the fact I that they missed s- that part honestly because <laughs> i was i might have blinked because i'm like oh my god uh, if i had seen that i'd be like oh that's brutal for a yeah. beauty it just just <laughs> if you look at the blocking and the way that it's staged it's it's clear that the middle of his body was entirely pureed but um, but yeah, the, the the people playing the Nazis as as stunties also put in a lot of effort to do the stunts, which again makes it feel that kind of tenacious. And that the like the modern day equivalent is Mad Max Fury Road. That just that to to really like bring it up to the point of you know where the war boys are all trying to like pole vault onto the rig. We had to get to that level to really get that much better than this. Just. The pure example of, of being able to pull off practical stunts at, at speed. Yeah, also definitely. speed. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. So 
<clears throat> After this, we get the sequence where they've uh, recovered the Ark, and they notably get help from everyone who hates the Nazis. So as soon as they get back to Cairo, the people of Cairo, like, cover up the truck, cover up the Ark, pretend that they're having a market, and just sort of hide it. And it's, it's nice to show sort of like, we hate these guys being in our country. So yeah. it, that kind of redresses the balance of, of Indy coming over to steal yeah. artifacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and another thing I actually noticed on the on this recent viewing was uh, one of the people at the fake stall was offering the head Nazi guy a melon, and the guy and the guy takes a melon, the melon, looks at it in disgust, and chucks it at one of the dogs. No. <laughs> <laughs> like like, why do I need this? an animal like you know to show he doesn't like animals too much either apparently just when you thought he couldn't get any cuddlier is is that dietrich the uh the 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 guy who's not sure about this jewish ritual i believe that was him yeah yeah and i didn't notice that before until uh, i was looking at some of the more background stuff just Mm. to kind of glean more background detail because i've seen this movie so much Mm. and i noticed that like wait he just threw the melon at the dog When you're a kid, there's a lot of kind of Nazis who don't really get named and don't talk to Indy directly, who are sort of like wandering around, and you kind of lose track because they all look like white guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Tote uh, was was went unnamed, and as mm. you see the credits, until uh, he showed up as a as a character in Lego Indiana Jones, the first game. Mm. So. Uh, the first, uh, so. But you could at least distinguish him because he is like he's dressed obviously very differently, and he has this ghoulish performance. Like uh, we <laughs> are not thirsty, mm. and he's got this. What real... shall we talk about? <laughs> There's a moment. Your fire is dying. <laughs> There's a moment, I can't remember whether it was in the behind the scenes stuff or whether it actually happens in the film, but Tote takes his hat off and he's got this very specific bald pattern. Oh, it's not a flattering haircut. It's not. And it just it just made me think, is this why male-dominated authoritarian cults are all obsessed with hats? Because they're really insecure about their own baldness? I actually heard that the Ronald Lacey actually... Like deliberately cut his hair that way just to ah. like to get, to make uh, to make the to make his character a little more like a more unsavory looking, I guess. Yeah. Like to make. Okay. He's you know, an so, like, creep. I mean, he was already kind of unnerving looking anyway, but the fact yeah. that he's balding makes him even more unsavory, and I thought it was a nice touch. Yeah. Um, it, it horrifies me as a man going bald myself. I'm just Honestly, like. Honestly, you have nothing to worry about. It's fine. I'm gonna get the fryer tuck. It's be coming. Lovely, I, even if well, I, I've got I've got dark eyebrows, even though I'm a redhead, and it's just I've been noticing little gray hairs popping up from time to time. I'm like, oh gray, shit. Fine, I'm fine with being a distinguished gray. I just I don't want the. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, I don't you look could like, do the yeah the sweeps of gray like Doctor Strange or something. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't want to look like uh, Christian Slater in uh, uh, The Name of the Rose. I wouldn't mind looking like Sean Connery in The Name of the Rose. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So, um, like I say, recovering the art requires uh, help from uh, other people. Again, it's like it's everyone's in this together. It's not so much to – it's definitely not to steal the art. It is a this must not fall into Nazi hands. We've got Mr. Katanga here uh, helping out Indy. A nice little bit of like, you know, th- there were also people there who were black. Just to, just to like, g- give us a bit of a Lando, you know, at the, at the time. Yeah. You know. Uh, f- funny thing, I didn't notice this until I saw it on a Twitter feed, but apparently the guy who plays Katanga is mm-hmm. the same guy who plays Kingsley, Kingsley Shacklebolt in Harry Potter. Oh, shit. I know. I was like, wait a minute. Same, uh, same, that's the same guy? He what is very the young there, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <sighs> you may not like him, Minister, but you can't deny 
Dumbledore's got style. Yeah, they, there's this really lovely kind of kind of goodbye to Salah, with uh, which uh, Marion sort of like uh, gives him that this is for fire, this is for your children, and this is for you. At this point, sort of Marion has gone from being the sort of the, the feisty one to actually being kind of more of a romantic figure, which then plays neatly into the next scene where she's trying to romance Indy, but he is absolutely shattered, physically, like smashed up and buggered up, and there is this wonderful piece of comedy where when they're on the uh, ship and she goes behind the mirror and he's just sort of looking in the mirror at himself looking at how banged up he is and she wipes the mirror and pulls it down smashing him in the face with the lower part and then it cuts away to the outside of the ship with a screen I am never not going to find that kind of gag funny where like <laughs> someone agree. gets horribly hurt and then you get the scream from outside yeah, I love that. I love those kind of smash cuts too. Yeah. I, those gags never get old for me either. And the fact that she then leans around and goes, "What were you saying?" as though she didn't hear him go. Ah! She was distracted. <laughs> she was thinking about something else. Yeah, I've been in that exact same place where I'm like, "Oh Christ, my hand hurts so much, or my foot hurts so much. I'm gonna get up and just like stretch my arm because it hurts so much, or something, and then bang my head on the door frame, and then this exact moment from Raiders comes back to me, and I picture the outside of my house as I scream. <laughs> but this, as a as a love oh. scene, this would be where Bond would then conquer the woman that he's with and just sh- shag her and I realised here oh my god there's of the four films Indioni actually has sex with one woman once and that's um, Elsa in uh, Last Crusade and she's using him at that point she's distracting him with her body so that he won't go why were you looking around my room um, just conning him so yeah he has the opportunity for Indy to basically make a move on Marion, and Marion's trying to make moves on him, and he's just like, ow! And he's behaving like a little boy. He's like, ow! It hurts! Ow! Yeah, like, here! You know, here! And, and then it ends with him pointing this up, like, here? Almost yeah. like a little kiss. That would be nice. You know, almost kind of playful. <laughs> this, for me, is the intersection between uh, him and Han Solo, specifically Han in Empire. There's a very, like, that when Han and, Han and Indy are vulnerable, it kind of, it's the same. And uh, it's it's very appealing. And especially, like I said, like, rather than this being a sleazy moment, it's actually quite sweet that she's like, right, okay, so now we're going to have some romance. No. And then he falls asleep, and it's it's kind of the, the opposite of what you would normally expect. And then you know, yeah, so he's waking uh, up in the morning, and, and nothing has happened. Well, I was going to say, it also, it's encapsulated with that, with after he falls asleep, and she's all like, Jones? Jones? <laughs> and then she's all like, we're not going to get a break, are we? Mm-hmm. You know, he's, she's like dejected, but she also kind of understands, yeah, she's been through some shit. I'll let him rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the scene also opens with a little aside that could almost be an apology she's wearing the dress that katanga's given her that they just happen to have you know lying around and Funny that he says it's lovely and it's it's quite quiet it's just a little throwaway line but that is in direct contrast to the fact that the last time he saw her dolled up in somebody else's white dress he was quite scathing about it hmm. yeah i mean especially when he when uh, you know when uh, Marion was all like, uh, like I was trying to get away, and he says, "How hard were you trying?" Which, yeah, 
which is kind of a bit of crap getting crap past the radar there when you think about it but so still. kind of belloc did actually kind of get to him in a kind of i'm going to cock you indiana jones a little bit yeah uh, but that, I, I said myself when we were watching it yeah when uh, when marion's shrieking and trying to get on indy's back i was like in this scene that's me i'm not indy trying to clear the snakes i'm on indy's back screaming <laughs> <laughs> So I'm totally in the Marion role for that one. Um, but there's uh, the bit when he actually shows his vulnerability. She removes his fedora hat and he's just Henry Jones Jr. at that point. And, and, and that's when yeah. he starts to sort of like let down that his, his guard and he lets it down enough that he's slump into unconsciousness at that stage. But it's that's the point when it that the that the love music sort of kind of kicks in and you've got that lovely kind of... It, it feels not sleazy mm. in the right way. Well, it's it's indicative that he feels safe with her. Everything that's been thrown at him throughout this entire adventure mm. and here with her, he actually feels like he can relax long enough to sleep. Yeah. That's quite I, a, a powerful message in the midst of mm. guns and diarrhea and snakes and spiders. Guns and diarrhea is our Guns and Roses <laughs> cover band. <laughs> Like we're, we're wildly unpopular. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine why with the latter, uh, the latter of those two things. We but, were never yeah. invited back after that first prom show. Um, okay, so... <laughs> Moving on. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Please, I don't need a nurse. I just want to sleep. He's such a baby. Marion, Go away. Yes. It hurts. Wow. Well, goddammit, anywhere doesn't it hurt? Here. Here. This is too bad. to get a break, do we? Like I said, U-boat chicanery, and then uh, he's at the uh, German U-boat station, and then uh, getting into a, a, a uniform which doesn't quite fit well. It's always deeply satisfying to see anyone punch a Nazi so hard their hat flies up and they catch it. It doesn't happen often, but if you're ever lucky enough to witness it, you know, settle back in, grab the popcorn you're in for a treat. Yeah, and also when the, the guy's reprimanding him, apparently mm. he's... Like, I don't know a lot of German. I'm just going by what my friends of mine say, uh, know who know German say, but apparently he's reprimanding him for being out of uniform and yeah. thing. And it's like, you look, so, you look like a pig, dress, uh, get yourself cleaned up or something like that. Yeah, it's, I heard Schwein uh, somewhere. So yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a nice uh, little... It's almost a John McClane moment, you know, where he's like, I, I've, I've got to, you know, kill the only terrorist with feet smaller than my sister. Uh, because the jacket that he's got is way too tiny. Um, exactly. But then Indy gets the choice whether to blow up the Ark or not. 
And this is a real moment, if you think about it, because in all seriousness, Indy should blow up the Ark, thus killing Marion and getting shot himself for it. Like, for the sake of the world, to take this out of the, off the, off the map, to take it out of the game, he should blow up the Ark. Him not doing that gets him captured. They open the Ark. They could end up with the weapon that will win them the war and conquer the world. Morally speaking, Indy should have blown up the Ark. It is astonishing that he doesn't. There's no real, like, I don't have a, uh, much more of a comeback on that. The, the yeah. fact that Belloc manages to put it in such elegant terms whilst eating a real fly. Um, like a fly I didn't even notice that for years until I saw, uh, watched it, like, a couple uh, for the movie night thing when one of my friends was like, did he just eat a fly? Totally. Like, I- DiCaprio would get an Oscar for that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he, uh, like he, the, the, way, the way he couches it in terms that are, like, he uses a machine gun to get his say, but the whole you want to see this opened as much as I do, like I've won, but like we're gonna open the ark. Yeah. And I, I, in all, like I say, in all seriousness, Indy should just blow it up. You've got then end of movie. Maybe that, that this, this silent Jehovah just was like, no, 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 it's okay. Let them open it. Just sort of whispering quietly, <laughs> and they're sort yeah. of like, it's gonna be okay. Wait, I don't know, that's the only thing I can do to explain it, I suppose. This speech that Belloc gives at this point is really key in terms of of characterising him because Belloc's been this sort of, I'm in the middle, I'm morally ambiguous, I'm hanging around with Nazis, but I clearly don't believe in their ideology. I have perspective. Exactly. But his point about we're just passing through history, this is history tells you where his perspective lies. At the end of the day, it is still just a thing. It's an artefact. If the people are not there to witness these things that are history, they're irrelevant. The universe doesn't care that you've got some stone in a box. Mm. If there's no people there to see it, this history that you're passing through doesn't matter. There's about to be very few people here to see well, it. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. And the, the ones that do, I'm going to wish they hadn't. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, it's an absolutely fantastic, like, tense scene. And again, it's not really even a moral choice on Indy's part. This whole, you know, you know, you want to see it open as much as I. Like, it, that can't be really his reason. I don't think it's that he wants to see it opened, but he is acutely aware of the fact that it is a piece of physical history. Mm. And... I think that something on some prevents level, him from destroying it, is, it. It's really difficult for him to countenance destroying mm. that. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember what I was thinking of, but, uh, but also like, I think just like, I think he's just really keen on just preserving as much of our history as he can because of, mm. because, you know, like the saying goes, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. So, mm. That's probably a little bit of that as well, where if people forget why the Ark is so revered, then uh, then that, that's definitely going to happen if he just blows it to hell, mm. so to speak. Um, I yeah. was curious as to the origin of the term Ark, because it's used, to my knowledge, twice, both in the Bible. Mm. This, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and Noah's, Noah's Ark. Ark. Yeah. So I thought it's got to be more than just... Uh, it, it obviously just doesn't mean a boat or a, a container. 
but it's derived from the Latin word arca, which means chest, and that's as in, I, I presume, physical chest on the body as well as chest a box. Mm-hmm. But it also comes from arcare, which is to hold off or defend. So essentially, it's a container that represents protection. So the rib cage is protection for the heart and lungs, but not just for the things inside it, but the entity that it resides in itself. So in the case of the Ark of the Covenant, it's protecting these stone tablets, but then it is in and of itself protected by the Jewish community. And Noah's Ark contained all of these uh, examples of human and animal life. And so life on Earth was preserved by virtue of the fact that a bit of it was contained in this Ark. Jones? Jones! I'm gonna blow up the air, Your persistence surprises even me. You're gonna give mercenaries a bad name. Surely you don't think you can escape from this island. It depends on how reasonable we're all willing to be. All I want is the girl. If we refuse... Then your Fuhrer has no prize. Okay, Jones. You win. Blow it up. Zurück! 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 Yes, blow it up! Throw it back to God. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the Ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Do as you will. So the wonders of the Ark, one of the greatest scenes in cinema history, absolutely enthralling, incredibly simple, bad people open up a thing, the Almighty passes judgment on them, and bad things happen to them. Yep. It is an absolute, like, top-level example of tension delivered in a scene, being alluring that that thing that uh, John Williams said about the the arc theme like beckoning you and drawing you in and then uh, it turning into something absolutely terrible he said that this this was used in opera where you know something sounds sweet and then it becomes just this figurehead of wrath mm. and well, it's, for, it's yeah, almost like a horror movie from Greek myth yeah so exactly yeah, yeah siren call yeah, and uh, the, you know these um, flying angels come out, and I always interpreted them as uh, you know the, the, these are angels, you know, sent by the Lord to uh, you know to, to greet these particular uh, uh, finders of the ark, and then like the whole Marion don't look at it thing. I, I think again that they, they were kind of exempt 
especially for the fact that it would appear that God also untied the knots that were binding them. <laughs> when or, they at least bur- the or at the very least burned away the ropes. Or burned away the ropes, yeah. It was, it was like, you guys can go free. But the effects here, uh, just, yeah. uh, absolutely superlative. It's, it's, uh, it's the, when the Nazis get hit by this lightning... I didn't realize until we were watching the effects um, things today that they've got, each each actor has got a little light bulb attached to their chest on a wire that's sort of up in their face to give them that light and a light bulb on their back so that you know when they overlay the uh, the graphics there are, there are light sources there in camera to give us that oomph rather than just yeah. paste it on afterwards. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's really nice. Another thing about, you know, the God passing judgment thing, I, I think in some respects also God is like rather, quite frankly, pissed off about the fact that these Nazis and also Belloc to some extent are basically desecrating the Ark to some oh, extent. Absolutely. In fact, in, fact, in, the, in fact, in the novelization, uh, it's actually stated that if anyone touches the Ark in any way, they'll die. Hmm. So... So, so in a way, they, they, their fates were pretty much sealed from the moment they lifted the lid. <laughs> that that transformation of the spirit that comes out and sort of it appears beautiful until that moment of judgment is beautiful. Is one of the things that's always underlined for me the fact that angels and demons are the same thing. It just, just depends, depends if they're pissed on off how they're reacting not. to you. Yeah. yeah. See also good omens. Mm, I was just going to say ah, that. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, it's fine, it's fine, but yep, good omens pretty much on the same level there. <laughs> I love the fact that like they, they reach in and it's just sand. It's like, you know, we've gone all this way and it was just sand and there's that little, oh, it was for nothing thing and it's like, oh, I guess show's over and then while you're watching it's like, no, show's not over and then there's that which was from a synthesizer originally, Ben, but um, the same one yeah. that uh, he used to make R2-D2's noise and uh like we've already been given uh, like a little bit of display that the ark is not just a box because it burned out the swastika on its crate. Mm. And uh, then- my friend audibly gasped when he saw that. No, nice. when he saw that moment too. He was like, <gasps> "I love the idea that the swastika is antithetical to everything good about faith." I like to think so as well. Yeah. And so it, it, it's like you know, if if I if I've got a number one enemy. It's you fuckers right now, says the Almighty. Sharon pointed out that it's particularly satisfying that we've got three dudes at the front. You've got Belloc, this guy in the middle, like, you know, well, I'm not really taking sides. And his head fucking explodes at the end. Like, he's, yeah. he's the one doing the ritual, dressed in Hebrew paraphernalia, like in this effigy of like, you know, well, we've got to go through the ritual, just like pretending mm. to actually yeah. have and this particularly faith. particularly since his thing throughout this whole story has been, oh, I don't yeah. hold to this ideology. I'm interested in the history yeah. of it. Well, then that makes what you're doing right now even yeah. worse. And that scream he gives before, he's like, and just like fucking yeah, his face, face blows apart. Yeah. In fact, I actually uh, they actually had to obscure that effect in the fire and everything because the explosion of his fe- head was so graphic. Ew. The movie would have gotten an R rating. Nice. And Dietrich's so they- head implodes. It like sort of like pulls in on itself, like this sort of melting, um, like this sort of uh, apple turning into sort of like you know, a dried out pruned husk but let me yeah. just talk about tot oh lord <laughs> the way they achieve this is get a stone skull 
and like uh, uh, you know a, a cast of Ron Lacey's face screaming. And the stone skull can withstand heat. And then they layered and layered and layered wax and and you know, blood red wax and it blue veins gelatin, and gelatin and just various layer upon layer. And it was just so like magnificently complex for this head. And then they put two massive blow torches on it for apparently 10 minutes. And what we got to see was this time-lapse, incredibly fast version of it slow, just like melting, and it's fucking like eyes going as, as it slowly tilts over to one side. And just and you like, see the blood evaporating this, and everything. It's, it's like, wow. fucking disgusting. And like I said, the most fucking satisfying death I have ever seen. On, I, I was saying to Sharon, why don't people die like this? In PG thirteen movies anymore, like it's also also if you listen carefully to the sound a bit, like yeah. if you listen, Toad's still screaming, oh, as yeah. melting off of him, and you can hear a faint little bit of gurgling at the end. He's it's kind totally of sentient as his flesh is just boiling yeah. off his skin, off yeah, his like, bones. Ah, oh, it's oh, just, it's disgusting and amazing, but it's so wonderful. <laughs> It's so fucking wonderful. I mean, that floored me when I first saw it when I was a kid, but as an adult, I kind of get a sick enjoyment out of it in oh, a yeah. weird way. Especially in recent years. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the puppetry of the ghost angels was achieved with that wonderful translucency effect of having a puppet underwater. God, I miss that. And if you listen very carefully... Ben Burt has overlaid sounds of, like, seals and whales to give vocalizations to these gliding, ethereal creatures. It is wonderful and terrible.
and the fact that the music and sound all peak at this point and they're like ah and then it's just like Indian Marion screaming and it's like this is the thunder and glory and terror of the almighty and this fucking storm of biblical proportions it is such an epic way to end a movie flinging the lid of the Ark of the Covenant up on this tornado of fire until it comes spiraling back down and clunk done and it's like they've all just it was, been... it was quite literally a deus ex machina of the yeah. highest order <laughs> and like, the way that belloc says during this the standoff with the rocket launcher blow it back to god you're like oh i guess that's where they went or like via hell wiped clean by the wrath of god the most satisfying and like, imagine that sequence without the blood without the gore without the real sense of terror if it was just like ah and then they evaporate i mean, I mean yeah I, I don't think it would have been as enjoyable although, Hell no. although my my older brother actually uh somehow hacked a copy of a uh, version of wolfenstein 3d for me when i was a kid so oh, i could nice. play it and instead of seeing bloody corpses of nazis the nazis evaporated so you saw a pair of smoking boots it still had to pass my mom's approval so I could play it, but still, it was pretty... It kind of worked on a way that you were just talking about, like of making it a little more palatable, but... Yeah. But, yeah. Was, but, yeah, I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark and saw all those Nazi people getting all bl- blasted and everything, and I was okay with that, but... Eh. This uh, film I, is still just a PG in the UK. That just means that parents need to be there with their kids just to tell them what's happening. Like, that's just yep. one notch up from a U, which is you can just leave this with your kids and they can watch it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And appropriately so. Jaws is a 12. Mm. Um, okay, so... And then that's it. We get this... The, the ending, the actual ending where they bring it back and like they wrap it up in this really wonderful kind of like so quick way. Like we, they bring it back to the guys who said, find us the Ark. And they're like, no, 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 we got it. And then the, the way that uh, Marcus comes back in, we barely talked about Denham Elliott here. He just, he, he gets a lovely little sort of dignified he, role. He does so much with so little that yeah. he's given. And it's just, he's, he's really good at it. just almost being like, uh, like he's kind of established him as almost like a little bit of a father figure to mm. Indy really before we actually meet his father in yeah. the last crusade you know it's, it's it's i think they kind of made him more buffoonish in last crusade which they didn't yeah. necessarily need to do uh, well, they also made salah more buffoonish yeah well it also didn't help that at the time when they were shooting last crusade denim elliott was like having a really bad illness at the time oh. and eventually claimed his life not long after the uh, oh, like God. several years after they shot it so oh. Ah, rest in peace, Denim Elliott. You're great. Mm. But yeah, no, he he claims this uh, this very tiny role here just to sort of the line he gives. The Ark is a source of unspeakable power, and it has to be researched. That line and the very concept of artifacts of unspeakable power stuck in my head. But if he's on our side of the door, he almost certainly becomes a deadly enemy with unspeakable power that I don't think we can match. But if we find him and ask his permission and he says no, we may have lost our one shot at this. I respectfully borrow and reappropriate lines from my favorite movies when I was a kid. And there's, like when they refer to the orbs in, um, I think it's Steamheart, as a source of unspeakable power, that's this. Just the idea that the arc then just gets shut away is both frustrating 
and satisfying. It's weird. It's because it's, it's almost like if there was like, yay, we got the ark, we saved the day, and now America is on top. The fact that they just hide it, like, it is almost better because you've seen yeah. what it can do. Exactly. And also, in a way, it's history repeating itself where, yeah, the ark is in the hands of the American government, but mm. now it's hidden away in another temple of sorts, never yeah. to be seen again. Kind of like how the, when the Egyptians took the ark for themselves, you know. Until so it's, it's almost like a what's the word? A cyclical? I don't know how to say it. Cyclical. Thank you. That word, like nature to history going in a loop in that sense. If this was the uh, Indiana Jones Cinematic Universe, S.H.I.E.L.D. would find and repurpose the energy of the Ark and then use it to power their <laughs> helicarriers. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, thankfully not. Um, however, that. it does have a little cameo at the in uh, Crystal Skull. But yeah. then I, 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 my jaw dropped when I saw that. I was like, wait, that's the <laughs> Ark. Awesome. <laughs> Actually, I, I was going to write this warehouse into a story sometime in the 2000s it was like and then they find their way to this warehouse where they store all these things and you know i won't actually say the ark of the covenants in there but it'll be obvious that that's where it is and then the bugger turned up actually in indiana jones and the crystal skulls like well i can't do that then i actually still might though (laughs) <laughs> uh, when I saw the warehouse and everything in Crystal Skull, I was like, this is where the Ark is, isn't yeah. it? And also, and also it got me vibes of this one show that used to be on the sci-fi channel called Warehouse 13, which is really good if you yeah. have, a, have a chance. I know you guys don't do television but, that often, but Warehouse 13 is pretty fun. It's, we did it's, see an episode of it. We, yeah, yeah I think we did see And it's got too. some of the same people who were involved in Buffy working on it, like Jane Espenson and mm. such. So. I think that's was, why we saw it. And then, um, like, Indy's in a suit with a different fedora. So, uh, you know, and, and, and he's, like, sort of on the steps of Washington. And it's kind of like they've taken it to the Capitol. And it's like, you know, the, the Ark is now in safe hands of top men. And then he carries on with Marion. And you can sort of, like, extrapolate roughly what might have happened between them. And it's honestly kind of sad that they didn't end up together, which, again emphasizes the the melancholy of that uh, romance theme it's it's lovely that they wind up together in crystal skull but there are many yep. many years in between which they could have been and you know clearly they have a great chemistry and di- dynamic there it's like yeah. uh, the, the next two can't hold a candle to it yeah and although according to the expanded universe apparently she and indy were an item for a while and actually considered getting married and mm. uh at one point but uh indy realized his, felt his lifestyle didn't suit marriage all that well even though mary didn't see it that way and he he basically left her at the altar and and unbeknownst yeah. to him was expecting well we'll get to that in Crystal Skull, but, you know. Although I suppose a, a version of events where they, in fact, did get married <laughs> and carried on both being adventurers is The Mummy Returns. There you go. The O'Connells. And uh, that's it. Just, you know, the, 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 the top men, and then you see this lone crate being secured, nailed up, wheeled away from us, and then it slowly pulls out to this wonderful map painting and just the magnitude of it and this sense of this thing will never be touched again and that's a good thing it's kind of it's like it's being buried in the modern day equivalent of one of those tombs yeah it also kind of makes me wonder what other stuff are in those crates really absolutely if, if the, Ark of the covenant is and they're like wow what the hell what are its contemporaries <laughs> exactly so, yeah 
That's uh, it's, again, it's the, uh, a wonderful kiss-off ending. This film, in terms of what it's set out to be, is pretty much perfect. Again, I don't use the P word all that often. It's problematic by today's standards on, on, on several levels. It would be different if they made it today. But in terms of what it set out to be at the time, how influential it was, and how it just stuck its landing every time... Raiders of the Lost Ark is magnificent. And our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, who you just heard on this podcast, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. It turns out that all along, the real treasures were you folks. And there is going to be a special 45-minute bonus accompanying podcast to this Raiders main event show on Patreon for all the little tangents we went off on that didn't quite make the final cut. And if you're on that $5 Patreon bonus feed level, you also get access to all of our quick reviews of Spielberg's films. We've already got Duel out. Next up is a triple bill of what we consider to be the lesser 70s Spielbergs. So that's Sugarland Express, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and 1941. You can hear us talking about them for well over an hour, again on the $5 Patreon bonus feed. And then the aliens kind of open their doors and go, you want these guys back? And then they nudge with a stick all of these pilots they picked up from 1945 who haven't grown a second older, and it would appear that they've been taken up on the ship and they've experienced something. Oh, what have you experienced? Doesn't matter, move them off stage left, because then some people want to get back on the ship so that they can turn up again 30-something years later in the distant far-off year of 2009 and also not know what's happened. I've put down here on a bullet point uh, the bit that Sharon mentioned before. Japanese soldiers waiting for a middle-aged American man to shit out a plastic compass from a Cracker Jack box. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. But let's close out on the magnificence of Raiders of the Lost Ark once more. And you know what? Despite all of the adulation I just gave... It's not even my favorite Indiana Jones film. Yeah, same. We've got more coming up, folks. So we're going to end now, and we're going to talk more about Indy next time. Uh, We've got, in between, we've got E.T., the extraterrestrial, and uh, we're also going to be covering Empire of the Sun with Brendan, who really wants to talk about that. 
And at some point later on this year, we will be talking about Crystal Skull as well. So, thank you very, very much for coming back on our show. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more of this. It's a real buzz. What's your YouTube channel? Where can you send uh, people? Uh, well, I'm a, like I said earlier, I'm a YouTube-based, what they call Let's Player. And my YouTube handle is called Golden Tales Geek. Golden Sun Tales of Symphonia Geek? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, and, so that's uh, how you remember it, folks. Pretty much, yeah. And also every Saturday, even if I don't have an ongoing project, I have a video series called uh, Playing Video Games the First Time, which is pretty much what it says in the tin, where I usually pick a random game from my Steam back catalog and I try it out. Basically, it's a first impressions video series, basically, where I'm trying different games. Okay. So we'll be back for our next installment of Spielberg with E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which we recorded with Chris Chipman. Another fantastic bloody show, folks. You're in for a treat. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out.